When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today, with Lester Kivett, in for Kino Cummies, on Cape Talk. It is that time on a Friday where we science our brains with uh, Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Oh, hi, Lester. I'm in good shape. How are you? Very good. We were just discussing before going to news uh, about many of us are tired of the smell of of alcohol-based hand sanitizers. I get a bit of a head rush nowadays when I get into my car and I squirt some (laughs) hand sanitizer on my hands and I have to open the doors, open the windows a little bit as I drive. So so I guess that's my first question to you. Why am I getting a bit of a a head rush, you know, when I am rubbing some hand sanitizer on my on my hands. I thought you only get this if you if you were to ingest it, uh, alcohol-based <laughs> product. Well, it's volatile, of course. The alcohol in the ham rub is going to evaporate and some of it's going to go up your nose. But part of it might just be that frisson of excitement, knowing you're all clean and ready to, to greet the, the driving wheel of your car with clean hands. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> but the calls are already coming in, and I see a lot of it is alcohol-based. I don't know if you know that for South Africa during our lockdown for the last two months, uh, the sale of alcohol has been banned from Monday onwards. There will be uh, the lifting of, of, of bans uh, on the sale of cigarettes. And Roderick in Museburg, you have a, a, a homebrew question. Yes, uh, my question is also to do with yeah, the alcohol. When people brew their own alcoholic drinks, what is the possibility that they produce methyl alcohol? Because that, of course, uh, I believe is the poisonous part. Hi, Roger. Yes, you're referring to the fact that uh, when you drink uh, alcohol, you're drinking ethanol, which is ethyl alcohol, and this can be safely metabolized in the body as long as you don't overdo it and won't cause lasting harm. A small amount is not going to do you any harm whatsoever. But if you were to distill alcohol, then you can end up concentrating methanol in your distillate. And methanol is a bit different to ethanol because it gets metabolized to something which is basically the same stuff that we use in the embalming parlor to fix and embalm bodies. And it basically does that to your body and it can target various tissues which are very metabolically active the brain among them causing various symptoms like blindness for example by destroying the the most active bits of your brain and it's extremely toxic so you have to be very very careful when you just use a normal sort of home brew kit or you just make wine at home then the dominant product is going to be ethyl alcohol no risk whatsoever the concentration of any methanol will be at very, very low level. Whereas if you distill anything, then you concentrate the uh, volatiles. And therefore, when you concentrate the volatiles, if there is a trace of methanol in there, you will concentrate that too, which is which is why you have to know what you're doing before you distill anything. And it's illegal anyway. So don't distill things. But if you do home brewing, the concentration of the bad stuff is going to be really low. Drink responsibly and it'll be great fun. Excellent. Salwin in Fisher, you also have a, a corona-related question. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, hi, Chris. It's, it's to do with uh, 5G and coronavirus. Uh, <clears throat> it's actually quite relevant to the UK as well with your 5G activists. I've actually read and listened to quite a bit of 5G, including on the Naked Scientist podcast. Um, and really what I want to know is this. What evidence is there to support the conspiracies, <laughs> like in Glastonbury, uh, the conspiracies uh, uh, that uh, 5G has any effect on, uh, on the coronavirus? You know, even in our little village, uh, people are asking you to sign a, a petition against 5G. So what evidence is there to, to support this uh, conspiracy? I'm sure you've been asked this quite a lot, Chris. Here's my answer. There you go. There was all of the evidence to support any kind of link between 5G and coronavirus. It's just bunkum. It's one of those stories that just circulated out of nowhere. I think it's probably a range of things, probably the 5G, Huawei, Chinese companies, Chinese origin of this new coronavirus. And as a result, the whole thing got conflated into 5G is now some kind of conspiracy whereby people are using this to transmit viruses or manipulate your immune system. So people catch stuff. And the sad thing is that people probably downloaded the stories via social media of this rubbish and got the idea into their heads in the first place over a 5G network. So the only the only thing that's wrong here are the uh, people being too gullible. So don't believe it. There's no link whatsoever. Move on. Chris, I love it when scientists get angry. Eh? They, they, they back up their anger with, with, with solid, hard facts. <laughs> well, I try. <laughs> uh, the only other one is, 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 is the Earth is flat. Um, we haven't, luckily, we haven't had anybody go down that path for a little while. So hopefully I that's not going to happen today. <laughs> <laughs> but is it Ushi in uh, Plumstead? Did I pronounce yeah. it correctly? Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, Ushi. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm intrigued... Why cut flowers in a vase in water, still suck up water, um, depending on what kind, some faster than others? But why? There are no more roots that are severed from the mother plant or root or bulb or whatever. Why do they still suck up water? Hi, Ushi. The answer is that if you were to cut across the stem of a plant and look at it under a microscope, you would find there are thousands of tiny straws these are called xylem vessels which are tubes which would have connected the roots of the plant right up to the leaves and petals and in those leaves and petals those xylem tubes open up and they allow the water that's in them to diffuse and spread out over the inside surfaces of leaves and petals and because those then enable the water to evaporate there is a movement of water leaving the top of the plant and this applies through surface tension a pull on the water further down the tube and the water is drawn up like you sucking on a straw and therefore if you chop the flower bottom off to make sure there are no air bubbles in those xylem tubes and each of them is tiny they're 0.01 millimeters or less across and this means that the the very thin column of water inside because water is very sticky that's how it can pull water up inside the tubes if you then plonk that flower into some water because there is water evaporating and leaving the top part of the plant then water is pulled in to replace it from below and the tissue of the plant remains viable it remains living it doesn't die the minute you chop off the roots it will ultimately die most probably but it certainly survives in the short term which means its cells are continuing to consume water and they're continuing to operate and function and therefore it's continuing to lose water from the top of the plant and that's why the water gets drawn up those tubes.
Chris, does it mean anything or does it have any benefit to the, the flower or the plant, uh, you know, sustaining longer if you cut it um, straight or if you cut it at a uh, diagonal angle? I've heard some, um, some um, uh, people who make uh, flower bouquets say that if you cut a, a stem at an angle, the plant will survive or the flower will survive long, longer. Any, any merit to this? That's probably not true, but what's certainly true is when you've bought some flowers, hopefully they'll have been in the shop or at the florists in water, but when you get them home, because the plants will have continued to evaporate water off of the flowers and the blooms and the leaves, they will have pulled air into those xylem vessels, and therefore there'll be a potential air lock. So one approach is to chop a bit further up the stem when you cut them across. The angle probably doesn't matter, but cutting them higher up the stem means you've got a chance of getting above some of those air locks. And then when you put them back into the vase of water, then you've got a continuous supply of water up to the top of the plant again. And enough of them will be functioning that will keep the flowers intact and active and viable for longer. We are speaking to Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Ronnie in for Leerstorp says, um, I have noticed that when I cook basmati rice in the microwave, the grains all align the same way. It looks like uh, a bowl of uh, stalagmites. Can you explain why does this happen? Certainly looks impressive if served in the same bowl to guests. I've never noticed that, Ronnie. No, I haven't noticed that. I'll have to go and do the experiment. Maybe you could send us a picture if you could tweet at Naked Scientist so. with a picture of your basmati rice. It sounds delicious, by the way. One possibility here is that when you put the rice in the pot in the microwave, because there's probably much less water there and you're not stirring it around in a saucepan, then you're going to have a, a supply of, of warm steam bubbling up through the rice and causing the rice grains to jiggle around just enough to organise themselves, but not too much to chaotically organise themselves. So my theory would be Perhaps because rice is uh, made up of grains that are all uniform sizes and shapes, they tend to, by average, line up quite nicely. And if you give them the opportunity to do that by just gently agitating them with a warm supply of, of steam rising through them and hot water rising through them in the microwave, perhaps that's why he's seeing that alignment effect, which if you had a pot on the stove, there'd be uneven heating effects on the stove, lots of turbulent movement of, of water, bubbling water and steam on the stove, which would throw the rice all over the place. That's my that's my hypothesis. If anyone knows better, let me know. But do send us a picture of the basmati doing this and we can investigate further. I must say that one thing I do remember from reading, you know, science books at the libraries is how to, how to tell the difference between a stalactite and a stalagmite. A stalactite comes from the ceiling and it's holding tight to the ceiling and a stalagmite is growing from the floor and it might grow and it might reach the ceiling if you want to mm. just add that and tell. Well, well, well I had one something a bit I... like that, which was um, yeah. when you wear your tights, your legs go from the top downwards, so tights go down oh. downwards, whereas mites climb up your legs and they try and bite you as they climb up your legs. And stalagmites go up and stalactites go down. A question here. Could the naked scientist tell me how is data measured? Example, what is one gig equal to? Well, uh, we break computer information down into what are called bits. And there are a certain number of bits, eight bits in a byte of information. There are a thousand bytes of information in a kilobyte. And then you get uh, 1,000 uh, kilobytes in a megabyte. And then 1,000 megabytes is a gigabyte. And 1,000 gigabytes is a terabyte and so on. So it's all to do with actually how many bits of information. And as we make our 
passage through the internet faster and, f- and bigger, then we're moving more and more data. So we're having to put bigger and bigger prefixes on the words. Because, you know, when, when I first owned a computer, it had 32K of memory, 32 kilobytes <laughs> of memory. And, you know, I had these, this floppy disk drive, which I thought was just amazing. I could store 100K on a floppy disk. Wow. And if you had the really high density ones, then you could get nearly a megabyte on there. And then three and a half inch disks came in and you could get 1.44 megabytes on one of those. And that was amazing. And then I went and bought my first hard disk. And it had 10 megabytes of storage. <laughs> you think, how on earth did we cope? And it was about the size of, you know, it was a, it was a huge, great box, this, this um, hard disk drive that was external to the computer. And you think now you've got something which is basically beer mat size and, and, and profile. And, you know, there's a terabyte on there. It's just amazing, really. We are living in the future. Maggie, in Paro, how are you doing this morning? Morning, um I want to know, in Cape Town we have the south winds that they call the Cape Doctor. It supposedly blows germs away. But now, will it also be blowing germs our way? (laughs) How far will the virus go in the wind? Very interesting question, Maggie. Thanks so much. Yeah, from Cape Doctor to Cape Infector. I think the answer is it's going to do a lot more good than, than bad. So it's uh, it's not an ill wind, it's a good wind. And if you go outside, the dilution effect of any germs that leave your body of almost any kind by being blown away by the wind and hit by sunlight and warmed up in the humid air, that's going to rob any kind of infectivity out of this in, in seconds to minutes. Whereas indoors, where you're sharing air with people, there isn't a wind to replace the air and there isn't the same bright sunlight and uh, necessarily humidity, then germs tend to spread a lot better. So I think any wind is probably a good wind unless you're downstream of a dung heap or some kind of horrible uh, chemical factory or a nuclear disaster. Frank, you had a bit of a, um, an episode last night with a glass of milk. Tell us more. Yes, hi, Chris. Um, actually, it was my sister-in-law who apparently took a glass jar, uh, put a liter of milk into it, put it in the microwave to make some custard, uh, heated the milk up, then lifted the milk out of the microwave and immediately inserted a stainless steel whisk into the milk to, to stir it. And the glass jar exploded uh, glass and milk everywhere and a quite badly burnt hand. And I just wondered if there was some scientific explanation for that. Well, the reason that things behave like that is because of uneven heating. And did you say it went in the microwave oven? Yes. Yeah, Uh, this can be one reason. What can happen with microwave heating of a fluid is that you can get uneven distribution of heat. Because of the way microwave ovens work, what they're doing is they're injecting into the microwave cooking cavity a standing microwave. And the wavelength is about 12 centimetres. So the distance between one peak and the next peak is about 12 centimetres. And when you, or one one complete wave cycle, when you put the object you're heating in there, it's therefore every six centimetres going to see a maximum or a minimum, which is where the energy injection is greatest so sometimes it's possible heating fluids in this way to get some bits of the fluid which are really really hot next to some bits which are really really cold and if you end up with a really really hot bit next to the 
side of the container, it can make that bit of the container really, really hot. And then an adjacent bit can be really, really cold. And this will have the effect because when you heat something, it tries to expand. It can cause uneven expansion in the material. And as a result, it puts it under strain or stress depending upon which bit you're talking about. And if you've got uh, sufficient stress in the material, when you then knock it, displace it, or heat it even more, it can just suddenly fail. If you were to heat the entire vessel up uniformly, then all of the bits would try and expand at the same rate at the same time, because obviously it was made by making the glass hot in the first place, and therefore everything would be at equivalent levels of stress. So there wouldn't be a point at which it would fail. Whereas if you've got one hot spot and one cold spot, you've got uneven stressing of the material and this is going to make it more likely to suddenly, because of these uneven stresses, break in one direction. And I suspect that is probably what happened with your jar or your mug of jug of custard. As I said earlier, um, Chris, that South Africa is going out of a two-month booze ban. There's a question here that says, um, after a two-month booze fest, says Warren, um, is there a recommended alcohol intake to prevent alcohol poisoning? I guess everything in moderation, eh, Chris? <laughs> that sounds like a dodgy question because I could be accused of saying, well, I now need to drink my, reg- my regulation amount of booze. The answer is that you should always drink responsibly and the, actually the human body works really, really well without any alcohol and if you add alcohol, alcohol is poisonous and we can enjoy a small amount because we have the capacity to cope with a small amount but any more than that is actually going to be bad for you and you should, you should try to stay within prescribed drinking limits because if you drink enough to actually begin to get drunk you've actually overwhelmed your ability to cope with the alcohol and you're already doing yourself harm. So any degree of drunkenness is doing harm. So we aim to enjoy a drink, but don't do it to an extreme and and don't get drunk. And if you do get drunk, try to minimise the number of times that you do that or the frequency with which you do that. You should try to have drinking holidays, not go away and drink on holiday. You should have a drink and then Go for as long as you can without having another one, at least a day or two. You should try not to drink, try to not drink every day of the week because it gives your body a chance to recover. And don't forget, there's a lot of calories in booze and it's equivalent to eating fat in terms of the calorie burden. And therefore, it's a good way to gain a lot of weight. So therefore, try to moderate your energy intake because that's all part of a healthy lifestyle as well. Now, Warren is listening. Quentin in Gordon's Bay. Yes, hi there, how are you? Very good. Chris is listening. Why is light the speed limit of the universe and why is it the speed that it is? We don't know. Uh, Light goes uh, three times 10 to the 8 metres per second. That's 300,000 kilometres per second. So you could basically go 10 times around the world in one second on a light beam. Very, very fast. We don't know why that is the maximum speed at which light can travel because you can slow light down. The speed of light is not a constant. It's a constant only in the medium in which it is travelling. So in a vacuum, that is the speed of light. If I put light into water, it goes a lot slower than that. If I put light into a cloud of very cold cesium atoms, it's possible to make it slow down to walking pace, incredibly. So light is not a constant. It'll travel at whatever the speed is dictated by the medium it's travelling through, but the maximum it can get to is 3 times 10 to the 8 metres per second. Now, why that is and why there is an upper bound on that, we don't know. It's fascinating. I don't know if you, you, you checked out the, the, um, 
the aborted space launch on um, from NASA from Cape Canaveral two days ago, uh, Chris, that was aborted because of weather concerns. Why is that? Why can't a rocket just fly through clouds and, and just go into the the upper atmosphere and then go in, in, in into space. Why are there so many weather concerns when there are, p- are these planned rocket launches? And why why it's significant was NASA's first uh, uh, launch of a new sort of mode of space shuttle in the last nine years. And there was lots of fanfare. And it was also a public-private partnership with Elon Musk's company. Um, but why is it so dependent on weather? Because there's so much riding on it. And the price of this sort of venture is huge. The potential human cost is huge. And the the setback it would cause in terms of PR would be huge. Much better to wait for a a day when you know nothing's going to go wrong. Because you're you're pushing the the technology, the bleeding edge with these sorts of things. And that means that if you have an opportunity to, to reduce the risk as much as you can, you take any opportunity that you can. And the, the the rocket would probably make it no problem through those sorts of weather conditions. If it can survive the sorts of exigencies of the environment it will encounter in space, it probably would be fine. But why take a risk when you don't have to, when there's so much riding on it? And this is what is going through the minds of these people. They're, they're driven by perfection and they're, they're driven by the fact that failure is not an option. And you either succeed or you don't do it. And we wait till tomorrow for the next try at that uh, space launch. And we wait till next week till we have uh, Chris Smith, the naked scientist, back on with us here on Today with Kino Kamis. Lester Kivet standing in.